Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Jennifer Venna, who's the Scientific Director of Alberta's Tomorrow Project. Jennifer joined the ATP, as it's known, in 2018, and the project itself has been running for over 20 years and plans to follow the health of 55,000 Canadian men and women for the next 50 years. So I'm really excited to talk to Jennifer today about this amazing and ambitious research program. For me personally, it's always incredible to learn about research that is multiple decades in the making and that has multi-decade horizon, because I think you have the opportunity to think about some really interesting questions that aren't possible to, to do under much shorter time frames. Um, so thank you, first of all, so much for, for being here. Thank you so much. So how did you become involved in the project and, and what is the goal of the project? I, I know you're here in uh, in a personal capacity as well, so so you can speak a little bit to your, your personal career, but obviously the, the project has been you know, running for, for 18 or so years before you, uh, you arrived. Sure. Uh, so ATP, I will have to make a disclaimer here. ATP is supported uh, by Alberta Health Services, Alberta Health, Alberta Cancer Foundation, the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer, and Health Canada. We're very grateful for uh, the support of our funders and hosts. But I am here in an individual capacity. So all of the views and opinions are my own and don't represent that of our funders or hosts. Great. So the general purpose of Alberta's Tomorrow Project is really to understand more about the causes of cancer and chronic disease. So really understanding who gets sick and who doesn't and why to try to understand better um, strategies for prevention and also treatment and understanding that prevention can take many different forms, including primary prevention, but also secondary prevention, like better screening, um, better risk prediction models, uh, and better early detection. So the project was started as a effectively a pilot project by Heather Bryant in the year 2000, just to see if people would sign up for a study where the outcomes really wouldn't be known. Uh, you know, there's not a one single research question that they had in mind, but they really wanted to create a research platform that would support multiple different kinds of research. So going to the, the public, the population and saying, will you join a study like this where there might not be direct benefit to you, but it will um, reap benefits for your children and generations to come. So the pilot actually went very well. And so they scaled up to a full provincial cohort study um, soon after. And ATP recruited participants through random digit dialing across the province of Alberta for about eight years. Uh, and in 2008, there was a, a national movement, I guess, to create sister studies uh, across the country. This is now known as the Canadian Partnership for Tomorrow's Health, or CAMPATH. And so we have sister studies now in BC, Ontario, Quebec, and the Atlantic provinces, and these are well established. And we have new st cohort studies coming on board in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. So in 2008, when the national partnership was developed, uh, ATP went out again and invited our existing participants to join this national study as well. Uh, and we recruited new participants at the same time. Uh, and historically, we had collected health and lifestyle information using questionnaires. And in 2008, when CANPATH was born, we went out again for questionnaires, but now also biosamples. So including blood, urine and saliva. Uh, and we collected these through mobile units that went all over the province of Alberta, um, which is roughly the size of the UK. So this was a very big undertaking to try to collect this, but it allowed us to get outside of the big urban centres and really get representation, um, pretty good representation from across the province, because we know there can be significant differences in people's lives and people's experience if you live 
in an urban center versus a more rural center. That's especially true for Alberta, which is very geographically diverse. <laughs> so we effectively recruited from 2000 to 2015, <laughs> which was a very long period. Um, but we recruited 55,000 adults aged 35 to 69 with no previous history of cancer. Um, and that roughly represents about one in 30 eligible Albertan adults, which is pretty fantastic. Uh, and so since 2015, we have moved from the recruitment and the build mode to now into the research platform mode. Um, so at that point, um, we opened the doors for the data to be accessed by researchers in Alberta and Canada and beyond, uh, developed a lot of procedures for how that data can be requested and how we keep it safe uh, and how we uh, approve projects for use. So we've been functioning as a research platform for about five years now. Um, still seems a bit young, even though we are 20 years in in some ways. Uh, we still feel young compared to some of the uh, big cohort studies in the US and the UK. But we do have a number of years under our belt and we are now in our 20th year. So we're looking to see how we can do a little bit of celebration over the next year, even with everything else going on. <laughs> Absolutely. Very few research projects uh, make it from pilot stage all the way uh, to their 20th birthday, I think. So yeah. it's definitely worth a celebration. So, so you, you have 55,000 people just in Alberta and in the wider Campath project. Is, uh, is it just as many in all the other provinces or how does that work? And are they all as, as vast and challenging? Do you need mobile mobile units crisscrossing the country? Because the country is uh, is absolutely enormous. It is, yeah. So the number of participants per cohort does vary across the cohorts from roughly 28, 29,000 in some of them to, I think, over 200,000 in Ontario. Ontario is a huge province that has much more population than we do. So CANPATH collectively is 320,000 participants and counting with now Manitoba and Saskatchewan coming on board. And uh, roughly, roughly half of those have biosamples collected as well. So it's a pretty huge database and there's a lot of power in that um, because I think it's it's very valuable to have data at the provincial level and on your own population because there are big differences uh, across the country in, in geography and environmental exposures, um, but also other risk factors um, and different health system aspects as well. So particularly when you're now looking at something like precision medicine, precision health, precision fill in the blank, which is one of the buzzwords now, uh, you really need that power in numbers to be able to whittle down to these um, very specific subsets to better understand um, individual risk or more specialized risk. Yeah, it completely makes sense. And so is, is it correct when you were recruiting people were healthy at the time, or at least didn't have cancer or other chronic disease at the time they were recruited, but in the last five to 15 years, depending on when they joined the project, a lot of people probably have gone on to to develop some kind of cancer or, or chronic condition, right? Yes, exactly. So for ATP, um, yeah, the only criteria was age 35 to 69, able to fill out questionnaires in English and no previous history of cancer other than non-melanoma skin cancer. Um, but that doesn't mean that they didn't have other chronic conditions. Uh, in a lot of ways, they, in some ways, they uh, are not quite as representative of the population just because people who t sign up for research studies tend to skew in different ways. But in terms of things like uh, diabetes, uh, obesity, etc., they are roughly relative to the general population. And definitely, uh, unfortunately, quite a few of our participants have gone on to develop cancer and other chronic diseases over the course of uh, ATP since they joined. 
So I think to date, we have just over 4,000 who unfortunately have been diagnosed with cancer since joining the study. What have been some of the most interesting findings out of the study? Are you able to start to pick out early risk factors? I know you've collected biosamples in the second uh, kind of second installment of the study, so it'd be interesting to talk about genetics. But you, you had presumably lots of questionnaire and lifestyle data going back for, for some participants, 15 plus years. Um, what, what were some of the most interesting things that you or, or else, I know you all organize and, and collect the data, but you power a number of other researchers uh, across the province and country. So interested in what you all were able to help uh, people discover. Yeah, I think, you know, our, our um, use of the data is still expanding. But we have had a number of papers already published using the data, um, both ATP alone, as well as with CAMPATH. So I think a lot of the a lot of the research so far has focused on cancer risk factors. It's usually portrayed as a cancer risk study, uh, although obviously we can support lots of different research endeavors into other disease areas as well. So I think a lot of the focus has been on the health and health and lifestyle factors and what that brings to the table. So for example, we were part of a large provincial study which combined ATP uh, health and lifestyle data on things like diet, physical activity, um, UV exposure, family history, combined with some other population level data to understand population attributable risk. So basically how much cancer could be prevented if you lowered smoking rates, if you were uh, more physically active, et cetera. And so this really laid the foundation for a big national study called the COMPARE Project, which was a huge undertaking um, by Dr. Darren Brenner and Dr. Christine Friedenreich uh, out of Alberta that received a lot of um, media attention because it was uh, cross country and it really shows you the potential power of prevention behaviors. I think another aspect that has really been gaining traction is really looking at these subsets. So there's two, there's at least two uh, funded projects right now going on with CANPATH data to look at subgroups of interest. So looking at lung cancer and risk factors for lung cancer beyond just smoking, um, because we know that um, there are non-smokers who develop lung cancer, unfortunately, and not all smokers develop lung cancer. So what are the other factors at play there? As well as premenopausal breast cancer, for example, young onset breast cancer and young onset, uh, early onset colorectal cancer, um, the rates of both of which are unfortunately increasing. So I think the power of of the ATP data really is in the health and lifestyle behavior, which you can't really find uh, in the other places. It's not routinely captured in administrative health databases. And so when you combine those two data sets, it becomes very powerful. Um, so as a non-cancer example, we have a research associate who works on data linkage with administrative health databases. And there was some evidence in the literature that um, use of antibiotics could increase the risk of diabetes. And so he looked at the administrative data that we are linked to to determine antibiotic use and diabetes outcomes, but then layered in the important uh, health and lifestyle and clinical factors. And once he did that, uh, including ethnicity, urban versus rural, BMI, smoking, physical activity, diet quality, that association went away. So once you account for these other very individual factors, you see how important that consideration of those are and that net effect. Yeah, absolutely. That, that makes sense. You mentioned that um, early onset breast and I think you said prostate cancers were on the rise. Is, is there any 
um, hypotheses as to why that is, or um, is that is that an area of active research? So it's early onset breast and colorectal. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. So in terms of why that is, I think there's uh, they're physiologically different. I think the types of cancers that those tend to be versus uh, later onset, and those are groups where it's sort of before a lot of the screening happens, right? A lot of the screening happens when you're age 40 for for mammography and age 50 for colorectal cancer. And so there, it can happen that because of the biology of it and some of the uh, prevention of the preventative screening practices, um, people tend to get diagnosed at a later stage. It gets caught later because it's not really on the radar. So that's one of the issues. Um, there could be a lot of other factors related to environment, um, lifestyle, lots of different things that could also contribute to that. From But from the uh, public health and screening perspective, that's one of the issues. Makes sense. One of the raging debates in the genomics community is how useful or not useful, depending on who you ask, polygenic risk scores and, and other genomic um, technologies or, or algorithmic approaches are to doing early detection or, or screening. And breast cancer is certainly one of um one of the areas where there's a, a huge amount of active research, same with things like coronary artery disease or you know, other cardiovascular conditions is I'm sure this is on on your radar. Have you all started to do any analysis or collect samples in here? Or it seems like you have the perfect um, the, the, the perfect group as, as well as with the link to the healthcare system to be able to apply some of these technologies and, and see how they work within your healthcare system. Yeah, so we we have limited genetic data available right now. We only have it on about a thousand of our participants, um, but it is an area that we are looking to to try to expand, obviously, because we completely understand the role of the, appreciate the role of genetics uh, in combination with other health and lifestyle factors. And it really is that net um, uh, constellation that will predict your risk for something. Uh, so it is something we would like to get more data in. We have the samples already. We have DNA in the freezer that can be used for this. It's just sort of fun, finding the mechanism, finding the funding, especially. But two of the other uh, CAMPATH cohorts have actually um, had a lot more activity in the genomic sphere. So our, our sister study in Quebec, Cartagen, they have uh, genotyped, I believe, all 30,000 participants that they have um, samples for. And I know the Ontario Health Study has also genotyped quite a few. So they've been much more active in the polygenic risk score uh, area and have papers published on it. I'm not quite as familiar with their findings, but those are active areas of interest. Um, and I think that is also one of the powers um, of the CanPath community is because we each bring different expertise to the table. So um, my background and some of the other backgrounds of, uh, say, the PIs in BC were more focused on health and lifestyle behaviors like diet and physical activity and environmental exposures. But we come to this CanPath consortium um, and can leverage the genetic expertise that's available in uh, Cartagena and Ontario Health Study, which was really nice because it's it's a collective community and it's a collective effort. Then, how coordinated is? precision medicine initiatives on an, on a national level in Canada cuz here in the UK where I'm based it's fairly well coordinated um there there's still quite a few different projects doing different things they don't always communicate with one another but there is a national strategy and you know they just put out a genome UK strategy if i contrast that with the US where i'm from it's very different in different healthcare systems and st- on a state by state level there's there is a national precision medicine initiative, but it's much more 
kind of federated where where different academic institutions with enormous budgets kind of tend to do their own thing. What what is it like in Canada? Do you all do you all coordinate pretty well on a on a national level, or is it uh, is it somewhere in between? I'd say it's probably somewhere in between because I see this very similar to administrative health data linkage. So in the UK, you have the National Health Service, which is one big body, right, that is responsible. And so if you want administrative health data, from my understanding, you go to the National Health Service as one point of contact. The US has a much more complicated system, obviously, differing by state and even by entity, you know, providing that health service. I would say Canada is kind of in between of that. We do have some national coordination, but it is still very provincially based. And even within the provinces, it can depend on whether you have a uh, one central system like we do in Alberta with Alberta Health Services versus Ontario, which has multiple different sort of uh, Grace could probably explain this better than me, but lots of different health system pockets. And so if you want administrative data, you would potentially have to go to multiple different sources. Um, We do have some restrictions on what type of data can leave provincial borders, uh, which creates an additional sort of challenge. Um, We do have some nationally coordinated administrative data. It's harmonized to the extent possible, depending on how people different provinces collect different information. So in terms of a precision medicine strategy, I I would say, from my understanding, I mean, this is on the radar, this is on everybody's radar, um, but how to coordinate that and how to provide the the funding for that, I think is still not super clear. I think there's probably a lot more activity on a province by province or institution by institution basis. We do have some degree of clinical genetics built into our health system, but not like definitely not from what I'm understanding, except in the UK. Uh, I think that they're probably much further ahead in terms of that particularly coordinated strategy, but also the the streamlined focus on it, right? Like this is the direction we want to go and this is what we want to do. And so I think for cohort studies like us, we're trying to figure out how we can contribute to that sort of initiative and be within that space between the research world and the clinical world. I think especially for ATP, we're based in our provincial healthcare system. So we want to see how we can provide value to both camps, which I think we're quite well placed to do so. It just it all takes time and funding and all of those important pieces. How do you go about closing the loop with the healthcare system? Because I think you mentioned at the beginning, and this is a this is almost ubiquitous across research programs, especially ones that are focused around early, you know, early stage discoveries is you often can't promise anything to participants, you can't say we're going to find something and tell you and tell your doctor and and it's going to help it's uh, people that are participating out of out of altruism, curiosity, or or because they're, you know, they want to advance science for others that are are like them, but everyone does want to have a, a tangible impact on their health, if at all possible. So how do you kind of ever feedback results through to the healthcare system or or do you feed them back kind of in in chunks in the form of research that then makes their way back to the participant kind of indirectly or or, or do you actually try to work directly to marry up the the participants you know day-to-day medical care and and what you all are working on from a research perspective yeah i think i think it's a challenge to be honest. So in the participant consents, uh, the consents that they signed, we said that we would not return information. Part of this is because we didn't know what 
would be done with their data and samples. Part of that is because if something's done for a research purpose, you don't really know what you can say about that from a clinical perspective, right? Like if they're looking at biomarkers or even genetic markers and you see this effect in one study, that's not enough evidence to then go to someone and say, you may be at risk or lower risk or whatever. So without that direct clinical impact, I think that's a dangerous thing to do. And going forward, it probably will just depend case by case too on what happens with the samples. So for example, if we measure something from a sample that's been in the freezer since 2009, it may or may not still be applicable to that person, right? Depending if it's a genetic marker versus another type of biomarker that might be more transient. But I do think about this coordination because some people do think that we are um, much more integrated into the health system than maybe than we are. Um, and historically, I think this has not always been so easy because there were a bunch of different electronic medical records that have been used depending on what section of the province you're in and what like primary care versus hospital setting. Um, we do have one main electronic medical record system coming into Alberta Health Services so that at least for anything involving our provincial healthcare system and the um, hospitals, et cetera, that will be using one electronic health record, which will be challenging for some things, <laughs> but great in a lot of other ways, because at least it makes it more standardized and consistent, the type of information that's collected and where you access it. Um, and interestingly, there is a component of that that is dedicated for research. Uh, right now, it's geared a little bit more towards clinical trials, but potentially that could include something like ATP, where you can have a tab that basically says this person is enrolled in ATP, and you could have data that kind of shows both ways. Um, that's all kind of further down the road. But it would make sense that some some of the stuff that they provide to us, like if we get them to do a 24 hour dietary recall, that would probably still be very helpful in when they go to see their family doctor, for example. That's sort of things that we're thinking about, but that are not uh, well integrated yet for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> some of them are related to the consent and ethics associated with it. Some of it's related to um logistics and feasibility and sort of how that how that would work because you'd have to you'd have to socialize that message pretty well and you have to make sure that everyone involved from the participant to the care provider kind of understands what what that information means and and that kind of thing yeah i think in, there's there's kind of a distinction between your medical record and your research record yeah. and you know for, from a researcher's perspective that's that's often pretty clear there's the medical record and then there's the things that we're not too sure about but we're collecting and some way to organize that in a way that's useful for not just the researchers but also the patient or participant and and their doctor i i, I know this is something that a lot of participants want or, or or often get confused by as well because you're in a research study that's embedded in the healthcare system but yet that um, that information isn't uh, isn't stored in your medical record often in in any way so uh, yeah actually maybe on that that could be a good segue into the well could I just have one more thing yeah please so I, I, sh I shouldn't have said that we never send information back. Sometimes we do. So, for example, when participants came into study center, we would give them like their blood pressure readings and their weight measurements and their body fat and stuff so that they could have that information because that's relevant in the time yes. period. Um, we're involved in a antibody testing study right now for COVID. And so we are returning results for that as a participant engagement mechanism, <laughs> but also um, because participants want to know their results and it obviously has, has health implications. So, yeah, just wanted to add. On that note, how have you all helped in the COVID response and what has been 
we have this very rapid shift as a result of COVID, but also since you started the project, there's been a huge shift towards digital. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering how, how do you see things changing? You're, you're 20 years in and I, and I think plan to go for at least another 50. So how, how are you thinking about the next, uh, the next 20? I mean, COVID definitely threw, <laughs> threw everyone a curveball, I think. I mean, we are historically focused on cancer and chronic disease. We have not been an infectious disease cohort. But we did, uh, with CanPath, we launched a COVID questionnaire to our participants in the summer, largely because COVID, regardless of what you think about COVID, it's affecting life as we know it from a variety of ways. So it's not, and not to downplay the health effects, but it's not just the health effects, it's all of the social, mental and emotional health, the economic impacts, all of these things have very important uh, influences on non-COVID-related health factors. And so I think it's really important to, to collect that information and understand what our participants' experiences have been through COVID. But obviously, we, we have pivoted <laughs> to now focusing on COVID. Um, and uh, ATP was actually approached by Alberta Health um, to be one of the antibody testing studies in the province. So we will be recruiting 4,000 of our participants to um, provide blood samples at four time points over a year to look at to do serology testing and to see um, who tests positive for COVID antibodies, but also how long they last, because that's still a bit up in the air about how long that immunity can last. So in doing that pivot as well, I think that brings up (laughs) your point about going digital. So ATV has historically been a paper and pen cohort. Um, And in 2017, we launched uh, a follow-up questionnaire that was on both on paper and online. So trying to to make that transition. Um, And at that time, about for the people that responded to the survey, it was about half and half who did paper versus online. Uh, And then when the COVID questionnaire came up, um, we just really didn't have the resources to offer it in anything except for an online um mode so so that's what we went with and even for the serology study it it will be online only again just because of resources i mean budgets are really tight everywhere and so we have to continually be evolving and adapting to that situation Um, but it has meant um streamlined in a lot more ways in that um our consent is online. The questionnaire for each time point is online and the um, appointment booking system is online. So participants can book their own appointment to come into the lab study centers, which offers a lot of flexibility and self-service as well. But, you know, the, the COVID response, we don't know the long term effects of COVID yet. And so I don't think this is necessarily even a huge departure for a cancer and chronic disease cohort because we still don't understand what these short or long-term health influences of the virus are going to be. Um, we've heard of some some people or members of the public who have had long COVID, for example. So even after the initial symptoms and the initial um, kind of hit, uh, they're still experiencing problems with um, breathing, heart function, etc. So um, this could very well become uh, a chronic condition uh, and there are examples where viruses um, are implicated in cancer development as well. So I think it's just too early to tell. But I think this is a really great example where an existing cohort like us, which has the infrastructure um, and has an engaged participant pool and members of the public, that we can approach for taking part in ancillary studies like this that can really help to answer public health concerns. 
And it speaks to how ATP has been trying to transition to more of a knowledge translation, but also integrated um, approach. So because we sit in the healthcare system and because we have uh, participants across the province, we do want to be showing how we can help contribute to uh, public health considerations, not just the research community, which is obviously very important. And we want to be able to support more uh, traditional academic research to to push various fields forward. But how can we also help to answer some uh, real world questions? Um, that healthcare professionals might have um, that we can potentially help fill through the health and lifestyle behavior that we have, which really complements all of the health system stuff. So internally, we've been trying to make those connections to be able to provide data, but also the analytical support, which sometimes isn't uh, always there just due to capacity in the health system. So we're trying to find that niche area where we can contribute value to our to our hosts and to our funders who are all involved in public health and philanthropy, <laughs> but also uh, really continue to serve the research community as well. You mentioned long COVID. We've received some funding from the um, from the UK government to do about 3,000 genetic tests of of long haulers here in the UK. And, and there's, a, there's a huge issue, which is people, there's a, there's a big gap in people who were not um, admitted to the hospital, but also have symptoms for, for months or, or longer. And, and there's a lot of overlap with autoimmune conditions there's there's a lot of overlap with neurological conditions so i think cohorts like like yours are are you're probably going to have by the end of this if if there is an end hundreds to thousands of of people that are affected by this and and it'll be a really good opportunity to understand it um and and i think one thing that i i remember from uh, speaking to uh, rory collins who heads up the uk biobank is i i think this whole thing has been a catalyst to some of the things that we should have had in place a long time ago, but weren't happening because of bureaucracy or, or inefficiency. They mentioned not having access to primary care records, which were, for whatever reason, unavailable to them, but were essential to some of the research that you want to do in, in early detection. And and I imagine with you all as well, there's things that you wish you had for for the cancer and um, cardiovascular disease work that you're doing. And COVID has kind of kicked things into gear and hopefully there will be a lasting effect of, we realize that we need to get this done quickly because of COVID, but it will it will hopefully stick around. Are there some things that you have seen change that you expect will stick around for the long term? Yeah, I mean, I think the for our health system anyway, the virtual care aspect has really been pushed to the forefront like a lot faster. And there obviously has been an interest in that in years past, but now it's really forced it. Um, and I think now they're trying to understand where it has worked really well and where the gaps certainly are and where it has not worked very well um, or what, what we might be missing uh, with the virtual care piece. But I, I fully, I mean, patients want a degree of virtual care continuing going forward. I think for us, the virtual engagement uh, definitely is something that was forced, <laughs> not only with our participants, but our participant advisory committee, which we can talk about. Um, and I think I think really, though, for for cohort studies like us, it's the data sharing piece, which I think is still evolving. Um, but this is really forced into the forefront where our current limitations and challenges are in data sharing. But, you know, due to legislation and other institutional policies we can't just offer up data really quickly or really easily and so I, I do think COVID has caused a shift in like okay we got to figure this out about how we liberate data but still keep it safe and still keep it protected but how do we do that 
for the greater collective good. And so I think it'll be very interesting to see how some of that evolves and hopefully sticks, again, from a very um, safe and acceptable risk level. But how do we how do we break down some of those barriers to make that a little bit easier to to share data for a really imminent health crisis? Yeah, completely with you on that. Other kind of questions about the future. It's not often that you talk to somebody who's planning to research project for 50 years. How how do you think about um, and I, I know there's no funding body out there that will write a uh a 50-year check as far as I'm aware of. But how do you think about planning for the future and what are the challenges or what, what tools do you have available to, um, you know, to, to solve the problems that you have today, but to also think about um, either maintaining this group of 55,000 as long as you can or, or growing the, the cohort, adding, adding new types of data and, and of course, upgrading the, the technology as you, as you go along every 10 years or so when there are big, big ships. Yeah, I mean, I think for for all cohort studies, it's that sustainability piece and the the funding for the core operations, um, because it's not very useful to have collected a bunch of data and samples and then not really have the capacity to deliver it to people uh, and to make it available, but also to provide that support function, right? I mean, a lot of these data sets are are somewhat complex and you have to understand how people were recruited over time and who's filled out what and all of this stuff. And so there's a big support piece there um, for the research community, for sure, but also I think for our healthcare professionals or other evidence users, as we call them. So we've been historically very fortunate in Alberta to be viewed as a provincial asset, to be viewed as valuable um, by our provincial funders and hosts. Um, And so we're consistently looking at how we how we continue to provide that value and how that we how we can support their uh, initiatives and try to answer important questions. We're not going to be a good fit for everything, and that's nothing ever is. Um, it's not a one size fits all. But where can we find those uh, examples of where we can add value and increasingly be more integrated into sort of that public health agenda? I think is really important. So, I think we we also want to understand how we can be. We're continuously adapting. I mean, that's that's really it. <laughs> I think you just have to because you have to continually adapt in your data collection methods while still maintaining some historical consistency because you want to be able to compare apples to apples over time. Um, our data management strategies and how we think about how we're storing data, but also how we can make it more available to researchers and other people in a very secure and safe way, um, but in a way that we'll liberate as much data in a, in a carefully controlled way as possible to get as much data out there for use by researchers, because that's why participants sign up for the study is they want their data used. So that's another big area and the participant engagement piece. So um, the value of a cohort study is the retention of those participants over time. Uh, and it's, you know, not everybody's going to stay engaged with the study over time. And that's totally acceptable and that's fine. Some people may come in and out of the study, also fine. Um, So I think in the last uh, five years, like now that we're past recruitment and we're really trying to, we've had a couple of uh, follow-up data collection points, we're getting a better sense of who our most engaged participants are and who our most consistent participants are. 
um, and then where we might be seeing some attrition or drop off. Really monitoring that from a, a cohort participant base perspective and saying, okay, this is how things are shifting over time. This is how our participants are aging, potentially aging out of the study, potentially passing away or potentially just disengaging. Um, so where do we need to think about maybe having some more focused engagement um, in particular subsets? And at some point, keeping an eye on when we might want to go back out for more recruitment and how we do that, uh, whether that's recruiting family members of our existing participants, like, for example, Framingham Heart Study has, uh, or whether we go out for recruitment in particular subsets where we know that uh, we might want to recruit to be a little bit more representative of what the general population looks like now, which is obviously very different than it might have looked 20 years ago. So I think we're, we're always trying to look ahead and also try to anticipate what we should be collecting for data because you kind of want to be covering your bread and butter bases about your established uh, risk factors. But a lot of those risk factors can also change over time, like occupation and work, um, work situation, uh, diet and physical activity. All of those shift can shift quite a bit over time. So we want to make sure that we're still collecting that, but also trying to pay attention to what the new emerging topics might be. Um, so in 2008, for example, that was the built environment and sleep habits. And so we collected data on that. And so now going forward, uh, we've talked a little bit about um, like green behavior stuff. Uh, our steering committee suggested we look at that to think about uh, how people's environmental practices and attitudes are changing over time uh, and what that might mean. So I think a challenge for any cohort is to be nimble and flexible enough to be able to respond to um, opportunities, which for better or worse includes COVID. Uh, as a public health uh, event and show how you can contribute and making sure that you are supported to the extent that you can be nimble and flexible. Um, and sometimes that's very difficult because you're trying to anticipate what's going to come, but it's hard to do that. <laughs> yeah, I do want to actually ask about the participant advisory committee. But before we get to that, I, I wanted to follow the thread of funding. There's an emerging model that's um, that's certainly becoming popular in the UK, which is partial funding from government and, uh, and um, you know, philanthropy and then partial funding from biopharma industry. So the UK, the UK Biobank, I think, was one of the first large scale examples of this. They, they put together, I think, around $100 million to exome sequence the, the uh, first, the first 50,000 participants. And, and now I think they're, they're both exome and whole genoming the uh, whole half a million um, and then there's a new cohort in the UK that um, it's called Accelerating Detection of Disease, which is aiming to recruit 5 million people. I'm staggered at the number because I think it's about one in 10 of, of the whole country. So you you can maybe let me know how challenging you think that's going to be. But I, I think it's going to be um, it's going to require an amazing effort. But and, and they know that, of course, but they're planning to I think they have 80 million in government funding already and they're planning to raise another. 150 odd million from the pharmaceutical industry to help create that. I think it's a it's a great model assuming obviously participants are are on board and know about it and, and most participants I think in my experience are are comfortable with this assuming that they know. Um but it allows the it allows the use of the data to go much further um and ultimately, you know, achieve the aim of getting new medicines to market um and it also means that the government doesn't have to fund the you know the the entire thing and then industries is just there to pick it up but has this been something that you all have discussed debated considered because uh, I, you know i'm sure there's there's probably people that look at 
the amazing cohort that you've created and and think, you know, we could really answer some important questions around early detection, biomarkers, drug discovery, if, if we're able to genome sequence this whole group, for example. Yeah, I mean, we, we're definitely looking at that. We we have been watching the UK Biobank example and how that's been executed. And, and I think the success that they've had in creating that type of industry uh, partnership. So that's definitely something that we and CanPath are looking at uh, and trying to think about how we do this, because it's true. I mean, to to generate the funds that you would need to do large scale analysis of any kind, but including genotyping, I mean, it's 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 big dollars. It's it's a big return because the amount of data that you get back is, is so substantial. Like on a single chip, you can get 850,000 SNPs, right? It's a vast amount of data, but it, it is expensive. And to, to try to uh, entice government, which is responsible for public health spending, uh, or even from a grant, is just very, very difficult. And really, we want the data on as many people as possible, because then it makes it more useful. And then you can support things like precision medicine initiatives and these various other pieces. And you need it on a wide enough variety of people that you can actually pick out these associations as well. Uh, so it is something that we're looking at and we're hoping to explore more in the next in the next little while uh, as a way to to facilitate that wide scale genotyping in particular. Um, but it would also apply to other types of analyses as well. Um, yeah, it's been really it's been really great to see the UK Biobank example. And they're such a powerhouse that, you know, they they really have the the oomph to make sure that it's, you know, and they're very careful and thoughtful about things, I find. So it's been really uh, wonderful to see that as and to set that example, too, and the expectations around how that data is used and that it will come back to the cohorts for greater use. And there's no proprietary access, you know, after a certain embargo period that it is meant to build the platform. And I agree, I think that participant engagement piece is important. Um, I know in our consents, we had mention of uh, commercial use of data and samples, um, but I think it is important that people understand how their data is being used, that it's not being sold for commercial purposes, that it really is meant to build up the database. And this is why we would look at a partnership of this kind. I think for us, we would be very transparent about it because we're transparent about any of the research projects that we uh, approve. It's all posted publicly on our website so that anyone can know what that data is being used for. And so I think that would be the same aspect. Um, but this is the type of thing that I would like to explore with our participant advisory committee. So this is a committee of about 30 very engaged members. We went through quite a process actually to set up our participant advisory committee. We did some environmental scans. We did some key informant inf interviews with other cohort studies who had uh, committees like this. And we also engaged with patient advisory groups on the healthcare side from patient, patient advisory committees, uh, and then had to figure out how we make this work in a province the size of Alberta with, where we have participants spread out across everywhere. And we really do want a diverse um, set of opinions and viewpoints. So we tried really hard to get a range of um, age, sex, location uh, as best we could. So this committee actually just um, got set up uh, within the last year. And we had our first meeting in March, which was originally planned as a two day kind of kickoff event in person to build relationships and then had to very quickly move to a three hour virtual event, which uh, kudos to Grace uh, Chantu, who is our research lead, and Marina Lakani, who is our communications advisor um, for pivoting quickly and actually still making that, I think, quite a very engaged event. 
through just relationship building and providing information and letting them get to know us. So I think it actually worked very well. And since that time, we've actually had a, a few more meetings with the participant advisory committee who uh, reviewed the COVID questionnaire that we had launched in the summer. And so they provided really valuable feedback on that from the participant perspective. And then they also provided input on the antibody testing study that we are um, we're engaged in right now uh, and gave us really good ideas for how to how to engage with other participants, motivate them to take part in the study, things we might want to be uh, cognizant of and what participants might worry about um, in participating in such a study. So I think all of that was really helpful. And we actually have another meeting with them on Friday night to talk about updates. Um, but I think aside from the operational pieces where they can provide very clear input and make sure that we're you know, asking things in a way that's going to resonate with, with participants, um, the type of um, ethical questions or ideological questions, I think, will be very useful too to engage them to see how they feel about industry partnerships, generation of genotype data, um, use of that genotype data, uh, etc. Um, because I think that's that's really important buy-in, and it can really help us craft the messaging and what people are going to be worried about. How do we allay those concerns, and what other, you know, what other uh, data control mechanisms do we maybe need to put in place so that we can show like your data is protected and this is how it's being used and to be very transparent about that. Yeah, I think it's it's great that you all have the advisory committee. I think um I think every research program of your size ought to have one because I think it just provides an incredible resource to to do everything that you just described and it's difficult or impossible for a handful of researchers to to place themselves in the heads of thousands of participants and, and really get answers to these questions. And, and sometimes surveys just don't quite get to the root of the issue. It's important to get people in the same room and, and, and be talking about them. And I mean, our participant engagement team does, is, is very good. Like usually when we put something in front of our internal staff, they can say, oh, well, people are going to get confused by this or they're going to find conflict with this. But it is true. Like that, that participant perspective is so important. And I think that was a little bit... Even in how we asked about the idea of a participant advisory committee was very telling in terms of the purpose of it, because I think some people felt uncomfortable and they said, well, I don't know if I can advise you on, you know, the scientific aspect of the study, where you should go with that. And so we really we really had to make it clear. It's like, no, it's your participant voice. It's your participant experience as somebody who's being asked to do all this stuff. That's what we need. And we need to know that <laughs> what your concerns are and does this make sense? And, and like you said, does this capture your experience or are we leaving something out that actually can help explain this? Because previously, anytime we wanted to put something in front of participants, we had to get ethics approval. We had to do a separate kind of study for it. And it's just not very conducive to this rapid um, turnaround, which I think, you know, the, the timing for the PAC couldn't have been better having it established pre-COVID. Because that allowed us to, you know, we could send stuff out and then book a meeting for a Wednesday morning for whoever could participate. Um, we've had incredible uh, buy-in so far. I mean, most of our meetings, even though they're on Friday evenings at 6 or 7 p.m., we'll have 28 out of 30 people who attend. And those who don't are like, I'm so sorry. And you're like, you're volunteering for this. <laughs> I have to be sorry. We're just so appreciative of your involvement. So I think it's been really, it's been really incredible so far. Um, and, and I hope that the participants also feel like it's valuable as well and that they have a role to play as part of this ATP platform because they are, they're the heart of it. So they should be involved. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. Really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about the ATP 
both the last 20 years and the next 50 to come. Um, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could share your Twitter and website in case people want to keep track of you and, and your work. Sure. So on Twitter, we are ATP Research and we have a website, uh, myatp.ca. Make sure it's CA because I think .com sends you to the Professional Tennis Association in the U.S. Right. If you're interested in tennis, go to .com. If you're interested in, uh, in research, go to .ca. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jennifer, and um, stay safe and good luck with your COVID antibody study. Hopefully, I know there's been a, a couple uh, starting to put out results here in the U.K. that are very interesting in terms of how long antibodies stick around and and how long they don't stick around and what they mean for um, for resistance. So be interesting to, to see how your results compare. Perfect. Thanks so much for having us.